Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello, and welcome to episode 97 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. We are three episodes away from our 100 episode, and I'm so excited because we're doing this special for our, our 100. And part of it, I would love to feature your voice. So if you have been listening to this show, please let us know what you like about this show. You can record your voice at sexologypodcast.com. You can tell me about what was your favorite episode or uh, what are some of the sex tips that you learned from us. I check out our listenership every week and I'm at of how many of you guys around the world listening to this show. And I'm very humble and grateful for every single one of you guys. Today, we're going to talk about a very interesting topic. At least it's extremely interesting for me. We're talking about sexual fantasies. Our guest is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. Uh, he did this wonderful, extensive survey, and he came up with the common themes that people fantasize about and how these themes are related to their personality. So definitely stay tuned for this episode, Dr. Justin Lemiller received his PhD in social psychology from Purdue University. He's a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Dr. Lemiller is an award-winning educator, having been honored three times with the Certificate of Teaching Excellence from Harvard University, where he taught for several years. He is also 
a prolific researcher and scholar who has published more than 40 pieces of academic writing to date, including textbook entitled The Psychology of Human Sexuality that is used in college classrooms around the world. And he has so many different accolades. If you want to read more about his experiences, his research, and his writing, certainly check out his website. I leave a link in the show notes. And without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Justin Laymiller. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Justin Laymiller in our show today. Uh, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Oh, yes, you got it. <laughs> great, great. So I'm very excited about this conversation because sexual fantasies are one of the favorite topics when it comes to the realm of sex therapy and even human sexuality. I think like one of the main reasons I got interested in studying psychology, I read Nancy Friday, Friday's book <laughs> when I was a teenager. I was like, oh, this is so fascinating. As I shared with our listeners at the beginning, you did this like very extensive survey of American uh, sexual fantasy. So can you share with us some of the findings and insight you got from that survey? Sure. And I, I think it's great that you mentioned Nancy Friday's work. Uh, it, it's it's funny how often that comes up whenever I tell people about my book. Um, and, and it seemed to stimulate a lot of interest in fantasies for people. But something I wanted to do with my work was to really uh, systematically, scientifically study people's sexual fantasies, because it turns out we don't know as much about them as we might think we do. So I surveyed more than 4,000 uh, Americans from all 50 states, ranging in age from 18 to 87, uh, coming from very diverse backgrounds about what it is that they fantasize about. And um, I looked at the primary themes that, that seem to characterize our sexual fantasies, as well as how they differ uh, for different groups in the population, and, and also what our fantasies say about us, so how they're related to our personalities, sexual histories, and, and so forth. So uh, some of the key things I found were that there were really seven major themes that, that seemed to characterize people's sexual desires, but the three most common ones that almost everybody had uh, were multi-partner sex, so where they're fantasizing about having sex with several people at the same time. Um, another very popular theme was BDSM, the sort of power, control, and rough sex types of activities. And then the other big one was uh, novelty, adventure, and variety. So just trying something that's new and different for you, whether it's a new position or having sex in a new setting. And these were fantasies that were pervasive across gender groups, age, um, demographic groups, and, and so forth. This is very interesting because part of me, I think it's like every kind of few decades, people's fantasies are changing. But from what I'm hearing, it seems like in like you studied these people across the lifespan and you noticed a similar kind of the themes regardless of the age. Right. I did find that there were some uh, correlations with age. So I wouldn't say that you know, our fantasies stay the same throughout the lifespan. Um, for example, something like multi-partner sex is, is something that most people have fantasized about before, but those fantasies are actually most popular among people in their 40s and 50s. So uh, there's actually what we call a curvilinear relationship with age and, and group sex, where um, it's less common when people are younger and when they're much older, but but more common somewhere in the middle. Uh, so I think that suggests that our fantasies 
change as we age in response to maybe changes in our relationship status or changes in our psychological needs. So I think it would be really cool to do a follow-up study where we sort of look at the developmental time course and trajectory of, of sexual fantasies and how they evolve and change over, over the lifespan. And you know, part of me wonder how we pay people from different culture have similar kind of fantasies. So our listeners know I'm Iranian and I had this podcast on sex, psychology of sex in Farsi. And I talked about sexual fantasies and sexual fantasies from like, you know, what I learned from my graduate school here. And people were very interested. And it seems like even people who were living in Iran, in Middle East, that resonated with them. So I would imagine that there are some commonalities based on people whether they are like living here or other part of the world, were you able to kind of examine the cultural component of the people's background as well? So I think that's a fantastic question. And I think there are undoubtedly big influences of culture on the content of our sexual fantasies. For this book that I did, I limited my data to people who were citizens or residents of the United States because I wanted to look at the unique role that um, American culture might play in shaping people's fantasies. So for example, uh, in terms of looking at the celebrities and uh, famous figures that are most likely to appear in people's fantasies, something I want to do in some of my future work is look at cross-cultural differences in people's fantasies and, and similarities as well. I would expect that you're going to find some overlap um, across cultures and what it is that people are fantasizing about, but you'll see some differences too, because I, I find that one of the big things that turns people on is what is taboo uh, about sex, right? So people often want to do what it is they're told they can't do. And because taboos vary from one culture to the next, uh, you might see some differences in fantasy content for that reason. And you know what I found fascinating that you found some commonality in people's sexual fantasies based on their political leaning. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, and that's one of the things that I found to be really, really interesting about this. Uh, I found that um, for people who identified as uh, Republicans, uh, they tended to be more turned on by taboo activities, especially things like uh, infidelity, orgies, swinging, uh, a, a lot of multi-partner sorts of activities. Um, they were also more turned on by, by voyeuristic types of acts where they're watching uh, other people undress or have sex. Uh, and I found that Democrats were more turned on by um, BDSM type fantasies, or rather they had more fantasies about uh, different aspects of BDSM and especially uh, masochism, which involves deriving arousal from receiving pain during sexual activity. And I think what, what sort of ties those political differences together is the fact that we, we tend to be turned on by what's taboo. And I think uh, in Republican circles, non-monogamy is something that's very much considered to be a taboo. Uh, so maybe that people in that party to be a little bit more uh, drawn to non-monogamy type fantasies. Whereas in, in democratic circles, I, I think BDSM and power play tend to be uh, more of a taboo because you're talking about people not necessarily being on, on equal footing uh, in, in, in an encounter with one person being more dominant and another person being more submissive. You know, there are more values of equality uh, in the Democratic Party. So maybe that makes BDSM a little bit more of a taboo and therefore a little bit more of a turn on. That is such a fantastic finding. I mean, when I was looking at your book, I was like, oh my God, this is great. And that totally makes sense. I, I, I think it makes sense. I think we need you know, some further research to figure out whether that explanation is true or not. But um, you know, that would be my, my hypothesis there. 
I hope you do a follow-up study on that because I would be certainly interested. But I think that's a good point for the next question that I have is, where do we get our sexual fantasies? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's very obvious that like, I saw this and now I'm fantasizing this. So there, it's not one-on-one correlation. So tell me, what did you find about that? Yeah, I think when it comes to fantasies, we like to look for simple and easy explanations. You know, for example, people often will try and tie a, a fantasy back to an experience they had early on in their life, or they might tie it to something they saw in porn. However, I, I don't think those simple answers are, are always the accurate ones. Uh, it seems that our fantasies are these very complex products of our own individual personalities and sexual histories, uh, of our culture and society, and and also of our evolutionary history. Uh, I think all of these factors come together to create this unique set of of psychological needs that we seek to enact in our sexual fantasies. So there's not a simple and and easy explanation for, for, for any of this. How is our fantasies then connected to our personalities? Mm-hmm. So I find that our, our, our fantasies are linked to our personalities in a lot of ways. Uh, so for example, if you're someone who is more extroverted in everyday life, meaning you're more outgoing and sociable, you tend to be more extroverted in your sexual fantasies. So you tend to have more fantasies about group sex and non-monogamy and, and infidelity and you know basically meeting new people in, in different ways. Um, also people who are more agreeable, meaning they have more care and concern about uh, the well-being of other people uh, in their sexual fantasies, they, they focus more on their partner's pleasure because they want to be sure that their partner is into it and enjoying the experience. I also see that people's attachment style is linked to their sexual fantasies as well. So people who have more um, attachment anxiety, uh, meaning they have more, more sort of fear of abandonment, um, you know, they need a lot of reassurance from their partners. Uh, they tend to play it a bit safer in their sexual fantasies where they have more of that sort of reassuring emotional content there. So um, in a lot of ways, I think our fantasies say something about us, how we feel about ourselves, how we approach relationships, um, and, and just kind of how we navigate the world more generally. You know, a few years ago, I read this book, like I, you're probably familiar with Arousal by Michael Bader, and it was talking mm-hmm. about how one of the purpose of sexual fantasy is creating emotional safety so we can kind of act on this sexual, sexual acts in our fantasies. What do you think about that? I, I think there's a lot of truth to it. And I see that uh, for people regardless of, of gender and sexual orientation, most people have emotional content that appears in their fantasies. So, so most people, for example, report having had fantasies about feeling desired or, or loved or uh, validated or, or competent, right? So people are often in their fantasies trying to meet some deeper emotional needs. Uh, and the fantasy is just a way of, of, uh, of, of helping to fulfill that desire. So it, it's providing that, that level of comfort or security they need in order to um, achieve sexual arousal or to meet a, a deeper psychological need at the same time. You know, one of the great things I find about the book is, I mean, there are many great things about it, but kind of normalizing some of the fantasies that people have, because while I practice in LA, you would think people are more kind of open-minded, but I hear lots of anxiety for many of my clients coming in saying that, you know, I have this fantasy, what's wrong with me? So it's great that you kind of, with sharing that, like this is a common themes, you kind of normalize that for people. 
Right. There's a lot of shame and guilt and embarrassment that, that we feel with respect to our sex fantasies. And that's true for people regardless of their, their background or where they live. You can um, live in a very sexually liberal environment, but still feel a lot of shame uh, about your fantasies. And what I find in, in my research is that when people feel more shame and guilt and embarrassment about their fantasies, they're more reluctant to talk about them. Um, they have more psychological distress. And so I think uh, helping to relieve a lot of that shame uh, and anxiety can, can be very helpful in terms of breaking down barriers to communicating about sex more broadly. And when we have an easier time communicating about sex, it's a lot easier to uh, get what we want and to achieve sexual and relationship satisfaction. So uh, one, one of my hopes for the book is that it helps to to sort of make it easier to communicate with your partner about sexual desire. And I think such an important thing, being able to talk about your sexual desires with your partner. And it's interesting, when I was more green in doing psychotherapy, I was very enthusiastic about kind of encouraging people, you got to share your fantasies with each other. But like soon enough, I learned that some of the fantasies are not necessarily safe to share or can kind of harm the relationship if you're sharing without kind of like having that safety with your partner. So tell us, based on your findings and your experience, what are some of the fantasies that's okay, like quote unquote, normal or common to share? And some of the fantasies are not necessarily helpful for the relationship when people share. I mean, obviously it's a kind of a not one size fit all answer, but I'm kind of curious about the, uh, your understanding and your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I, I, this is something I talk a lot about in the book is, is sort of figuring out how best to, to share your fantasies with your partner. And it's not necessarily the case that you just want to come right out with any and all fantasies you've ever had, because that can be a bit too much. But we know that when people engage in self-disclosure with, with partners, uh, that it builds intimacy and, and, and trust. And so, you know, there are a lot of benefits to sharing your fantasies with your partners, but you need to approach this carefully. So, so something that I find is that when people communicate with their partners about fantasies that involve their partner, those fantasies, um, especially when they go to try and act them out, tend to turn out better uh, than fantasies that maybe involve bringing other people into uh, the relationship. So, so for example, people who have fantasies about, uh, you know, a passionate or romantic encounter with a romantic partner, um, they tend to report very positive experiences acting those fantasies out. Um, but when it comes to something like group sex and, and having a threesome or, or, you know, sex in a larger group setting, uh, I find that people are less successful um, in, in terms of you know, having those fantasies meet their expectations. And there's also more potential harm uh, that can come to the relationship there because people are getting into a situation where there's a bit more uncertainty and, and maybe they don't know how they're going to feel about it until they actually do it. So, uh, you know, when it comes to sharing your fantasies, I, my advice is kind of to start low and, and go slow, you know, start with some of the tamer fantasies, the ones that involve your partner and that are going to validate your partner. Uh, so, so start there and then you can kind of build up to the more adventuresome ones later. I love the part of like validating the partner yeah. piece because and I think people are different as far as open-mindedness or not. So, you know, one of the couples that I was working with many moon ago, like the wife was shocked that the husband was fantasizing about other people. I know in the book you're talking about it's common for people, more common than I thought that they're fantasizing about their partner. 
But still, there are going to be times that they're thinking about other people. And I think that's normal for most people. But again, in that couple, it was just so disappointing for the spouse to figure out that he's and he was fantasizing other people. And and again, I think, as you said, it's important to be thoughtful about sharing your fantasies, because if you're fantasizing about someone that you both know, that can be tricky. Right. And and, and this is where we kind of get back into that attachment anxiety issue, you know, where, where some people uh, are more easily threatened than others or feel more, more insecure. And so when it comes to, to sharing your fantasies with your partner and also acting on them, it's important to have a really good sense of who your partner is and, and what their comfort zone and boundaries are. Uh, so it's essential to, to have this, this knowledge of your partner and also really good communication to make sure that you're not going past your partner's comfort zone or level and so that you can also communicate if, if things start to, to go beyond uh, your comfort zone as well. So for people, when they start dating, when is the good time usually to kind of start talking about your fantasies? So, you know, rather than saying this is when you should start talking about your fantasies, what, what I would encourage people to do is to establish just a norm of sexual communication early on. I think all too often people find it easier to have sex than to actually talk about sex. And, and that's where we, we start to run into problems is because people start acting without communicating. And then uh, it, it becomes very easy to go past comfort zones and boundaries and so forth. So it, it's, it's more about starting early on in the relationship and just being comfortable talking and communicating about sex more generally, whether that's uh, safer sex practices and contraception or uh, sexual desires and what feels good. It's just establishing that norm of communication will make it easier down the road uh, to start sharing uh, your fantasies and desires. And I love the point of helping people to kind of like, you know, the first step is you should be able to, I guess it's ideal if you were you to be able to talk about sex, because if you're not able to talk about sex, it's going to be certainly very difficult to bring up this kind of intimate fantasies that you have with a partner. And you don't necessarily know what your partner thinks about sex. You know, I get shocked how many times I get couples that they are, they've been married for a number of years in my office and they're. They just don't know about each other's arousal and they never talked about these things. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you get the, the same thing as me. You know, if, if you're you're going out or uh, you're, you're hanging out with your friends, that you'll have people who approach you and say, you know, my partner and I aren't having sex anymore. What what can we do about it? And, and, you know, oftentimes what I find is that they just they don't talk about sex at all. And then they wonder why they're not having it. So it really is all about just having that norm of, of communication, because if you don't have it, it's just hard to maintain a successful uh, and healthy uh, relationship over time. And one thing that I notice with sexual fantasies that at times the partners are comfortable. They don't want to hear their partner's sexual fantasies because they kind of scared that then now I have to act on it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think this is where it's important to make a distinction between a sexual fantasy and a sexual desire. And, you know, many times these, these things overlap. What I find, for example, with people's biggest fantasy of all time uh, is that the vast majority of them, about 80%, say that they want to act on that fantasy. So uh, people's biggest fantasy does tend to be a desire, but it's not the case that 
everything you've ever fantasized about is something that you actually want to do. Uh, so, so I think it's important when you're communicating about fantasies with your partner to, to make it clear which ones are just a fantasy and which ones are also a desire uh, so that you don't leave your partner in that state of limbo where they're, they're not kind of sure of what you're telling them when you're communicating the fantasy. Right. For example, one of the common ones I hear from my female clients is like, you know, maybe like even younger than 40 is their fantasies about rape, like maybe BDSM, mm-hmm. but even just a rape fantasies. And that's not necessarily something they don't want to act it out with their partner, but that's a fantasy that they have. And again, it's important to, as you said, make the distinction with your partner. And also when you want to kind of like act on those fantasies, kind of like having kind of start with, I would imagine, smaller steps versus kind of going full on onto the kind of like immersing in this fantasy. Right. It's it's all baby steps to, you know, acting on your sexual fantasies. And, and I think when people are just getting started with this, there are lots of ways that you can ease your you and your partner into it. So, you know, you don't want to jump right into threesomes and, and orgies and, and, and group sex. Um, rather, you might start just by introducing some other novelties into your relationship, whether that's watching pornography together or visiting a sex a sex shop together and, you know, each of you picking out a toy. You know, there are lots of ways that, you know, just you and your partner can introduce an element of novelty into the relationship that can uh, help to improve communication and and start to fulfill some of those fantasies and desires you have before you start venturing off into really intense activities. Right. And is it so what I found is when people figure out that I figure out that their their fantasies are not in like top four, they get this discouraged about acting it out. And I think with sexual fantasies, it's not a kind of right having a right or wrong kind of fantasies. It's, it's working for you. And it's just a matter of kind of whether it's, it's it is a reality that you can act with your partner or you finding a partner if you're not in a relationship or like a, you're in a non-monogamous relationship that's willing to kind of engage in that fantasy if you want to act on it. Right. It's all about, you know, is this activity something that is safe and sane and, and consensual? So you want to make sure that that everything is consensual and that there isn't this, uh, you know, serious risk of harm uh, to anyone involved there. And as long as it checks those boxes, you know, you could potentially consider acting on that fantasy. But no matter what the fantasy is, you need really good, really solid uh, sexual communication first. Um, and, and maybe start thinking about establishing safe words so that when you start acting on your fantasies, that there's an exit strategy in place in case one of you decides that, hey, this, this sounded better in my head than, than it does in reality. So uh, again, it all comes back to that communication piece. I love the kind of like having this safe word part of it because you know sometimes things might sound better in our head than in right. like acting on it or you know maybe like first time we're doing it is kind of awkward with having this kind of idea that I can stop whenever I want to stop it might be easier to kind of like you opening the door to exploration versus kind of thinking I'm starting this and I'm now committed to do it. Absolutely. And as a psychologist, I know you're probably familiar with the term affective forecasting where people try to predict their, their future emotional state. And what we find is that people tend to overestimate uh, their emotional reactions to a wide range of, of situations. So, uh, you know, for example, with a sexual situation, we might think something is going to be more pleasurable than it really is because we haven't factored in 
all of the other things that are going to have changed in our lives between now and when we act that out. And we can't take into account all of the other potential factors that might emerge in that scenario. So we make a lot of errors and mistakes in predicting how we're going to feel about things sexually and otherwise. So that's why it's good to go into acting on your fantasies with an open mind, because it might not always map onto you know, what you had pictured in your head. Right. And I would imagine a good sense of humor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because it's hard. Things might not look like the same way, as you said, like in in your head or in porn. And, you know, if you're taking yourself too seriously, you might get disappointed. (laughs) Right. And I love that you mentioned sense of humor. That's something that uh, I think is so important when it comes to sex is that you're not taking it so seriously. It's, It's okay to laugh. Right. Uh, and that can actually, um, you know, help break down the tension and make sex more enjoyable. So, uh, you know, don't go into this thing, you know, <laughs> being totally serious. It, it's fine for, for things to happen that are unexpected and for you to be able to, to laugh if something's funny. Right. Because again, like if you're using prop things that are new, you know, it's going to be a learning curve and it's important to be, as, as you said, that kind of humorous, uh, humorous and playful about it as well. So I know you're Dr. Lamer, you have, they're so prolific, you have so much great content and the book and all of that. So if our listeners want to kind of get a hold of your book and your blog posts and all of the great content you provide, where would be a good place for them to go? So my website is called Sex and Psychology. Um, You can get to it by going to sexandpsychology.com. And basically, I blog about the latest sex research uh, a few times per week. Um, And um, my books and and other uh, publications that I create are are all linked uh, from, from that website. Awesome. No, this was so helpful for us. Thank you so much for sharing your finding with our listeners. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Lay Miller. I love learning about sexual fantasies and I I really enjoyed learning about how common are some of these fantasies. I know at times I get clients coming into my office and they feel like, oh my God, I'm such a pervert. There's something wrong with me. And when I, when we talk about like how common are their sexual fantasies, it is certainly a relief for them. So if you are interested to better understand yourself, your sexual desire, and how you can improve your relationship, in my practice, it's me and two other wonderful therapists. You can always give us a call if you are living in California. We can do video counseling. If you are in LA, you can certainly come in and have a session with me or any of the great therapists that are in my practice. We're all very sexually aware and sex is one of our main interests. So just give us a call. Our number is 310-600-9912. And also I leave a link in the website. Uh, So if you guys want to make an appointment, you can just directly go to that link. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.